0: I'm going to pray here. And if you feel comfortable, uh, I invite you to pray with me so that we may request the mercy of God on us as we search for Christ in the Scripture and depend on the Spirit of Christ to illuminate God's Word to edify and sustain and strengthen our souls. Would you pray with me? We can have a thousand, a million, a billion beautiful descriptions of you and yet not even begin to touch or scratch the tip of the iceberg describing or capturing the worth or beauty of your name in person. There is no one like you, Lord. It is an honor and privilege to worship you and thank you that you in all of your magnificent glory and splendor Reveal your heart to us through Christ, that you long to be merciful to us, to love us, to care for us, to preserve us, and to teach us to look away from ourselves and turn upon Christ for the only hope of salvation. And so, Lord, use the preaching of your word. Thank you for your promises. When your word goes out, it never returns void. And so, hold fast, steady, and sure to that, Lord. Use your word this morning, Lord, to call people to yourself, to remind Christians who are struggling of the power of their salvation found in the person of Christ. Jesus, be everything to us this morning. Humble our souls. Give us attention to stay focused. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? Well, uh, many of you already know this. Uh, Some of you do not. But uh, my wife Lizzie and I, we have three children. We have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-month-old, Noelle. I can't believe that. She's seven months old now. Two boys, one girl. And uh, I never thought I would say this, but one of the things that I have been seeing in myself lately is this temptation to be a helicopter parent. For those of you who don't know what a helicopter parent is, it's when you're always hovering over your children to keep them safe and protect them from the world. Not necessarily a bad thing, but if overbearing, definitely could be too much. And uh, I'm actually not tempted toward being a helicopter parent in every way. My boys are these rough and tumble little boys. They often fall, get, get cuts, bumps, scrapes, and bruises. J.J. actually fell out of a tree this week, and I was proud of him for climbing it so high. Um, so physical wounds aren't necessarily the thing that scares me. The thing that I fear most for my children as it concerns harm and wounds has to do mostly with people and relationships. Like J.J.'s in school now. Him and his class go out in the playground for recess every day, and you and I both know that on the playground, kids can say and do the meanest things. The popular saying when I was young in the playground was, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is not true. We all have memories and or wounds from people's words and actions. I was actually reading an article this week from Forbes magazine. The title of it was, Emotional and physical pain are almost the same. And in the article, it cited Cambridge University, Dartmouth, and a study from the University of Michigan, and the author in it said this. While some physical injuries may cause a scar, the impact of those injuries often have a recovery date. However, long-term impact of emotional wounds can be lifelong and progressive. The scars are not visible, but unlike physical scars... The difference is that they often grow rather than fade over time. This morning as we open up our text, I'd like to talk to you about the topic of betrayal. And uh, with this topic, what I'd like to show us this morning is that we, as people, aren't the only ones who know about it and also experience it, but that Jesus himself did as well. In fact, Betrayal in the life and ministry of Christ played such an important role that without it, his saving work would not be possible. In other words, if Jesus wasn't rejected, then we can never have been accepted. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that the perfect and sinless Son of God was betrayed by those he loved the most. He died forsaken by God and the rest of humanity. And now, through his perfect and sinless work, we who have been betrayed and also betray can be forgiven, loved, and cared for perfectly. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 14, reading through verses 43 through 51. If you're taking notes, you'll look there on the screen. I've titled the sermon this morning, The Betrayal of Christ for the Mercy of God. The betrayal of Christ for the mercy of God. And with this text, I'd like to show you three main things. Number one, I'd like to show you the world's rejection. Number two, I'd like to show you our betrayal. And number three, I'd like to remind you of the Savior's mercy. The world's rejection, our betrayal, and the Savior's mercy. We'll begin by reading our story up front again. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 51. And immediately, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What an interesting end to a story. I promise we'll get there. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word right now. We're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you the world's rejection. Well, we've uh, actually been here together as a church in chapter 14 for three weeks now, and uh, what we have seen Together through our time in this study within this one chapter is one continuous story building upon itself. It began with Jesus and his disciples sitting at the table having the last supper with him. Then last week after dinner they journeyed up the mountain of olives into the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And now here we are this week and we are presented with Christ's arrest, which will then lead to his trial and crucifixion. Last week in verse 42, which was the concluding verse that we looked at, after the disciples failed to heed Jesus' instruction three times to pray, Jesus, after the third time, came to them, looked at them, and said, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. This week here, if you look, Mark begins our story, and the first thing he does is show us who that betrayer is. It is none other than Judas the disciple. Judas arrives here on the scene with this crowd, most likely fixed of uh, Jewish leaders and Roman guards. They have swords and clubs in hands. And what I'd like to point out to you here is not only Judas's betrayal of Christ, which resulted in a total um, rejection of him, but also what I'd like to show you is Jesus' enduring, long-suffering, and merciful love that is offered to his betrayer and this betraying crowd that Judas came with. Judas, a Jesus, and his disciples just got done praying in the garden, and Judas was evidently not there. Just before that, they just got done eating Jesus with his disciples during the Last Supper, and while they were eating the supper, Christ himself predicted that this would happen. Just two weeks ago, before that, in chapter 12, Judas was there at the event where Mary broke open the bottle of nard, and poured it over Christ's head to express love and worship, and Judas was right there scheming over the ministry money bag. In fact, all throughout the course of Jesus' life and ministry together with Judas, John chapter 12 verse 6 says that Judas had been stealing from it. Day after day in the temple, Jesus visited the Jews, these religious leaders here, and sought to reveal himself and extend to them mercy. And here we have all of these people greeting and treating Christ with his evil premeditated attack and a plan meant for his destruction and demise. So here in this garden, this group of men and Judas approach Christ. I'm going to say it again in a different way to change our perspective, to sober us to what's happening. Here in this garden, this group of men in Judas approach God. Judas told the group that he would point out who Christ is by greeting him with a kiss. So Judas approached Christ, got close to him, said rabbi, and then kissed him on the cheek. Historically, uh, this type of kiss was a sign of homage and endearment. And the word rabbi here that Judas uses means um, great one and or teacher. But Judas's kiss here was meant to express neither one of those things. With the supporting background that we have here, we are able to understand that this kiss that was given to Christ by Judas was the epitome of mockery and deception. It was meant to deliver a sting. And Mark here as the author wants us as readers to stop and think about it. Why or how could I say that? Well, because stylistically, this is unlike Mark to provide such details in his story. Mark, out of all four gospel accounts, is the least detailed of every writer. And as an example here, even here in the story, he does not name the, 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 the man who cuts off the guard's ear, nor does he name the first shrieker in the Bible to ever appear, which is at the end of the story that we just saw a second ago. But here we see that Mark is committed to not leaving out this one thing, this one fact, this one event, which is that Judas kissed Christ. One commentator about this said this. When Judas approaches Jesus, he kisses him not with modesty and reserve, but lavishly, according to the Greek, even passionately. The word here could indicate a prolonged kiss or a very elaborate one, like Joab's earlier kiss and dagger use with Amasa in 2 Samuel 20, it is an act of love performed for a mission of hate. Whatever else the significance of the betrayal kiss, that gesture, along with the honorific title, Rabbi, makes a burlesque of Jesus. The manner of betrayal becomes the first example of the mockery of Christ. And so as I point this out to you here, what I'd like to show you is not only Judas' kiss, which holds this premeditated evil and overt rejection of Christ, but also Christ himself in the face of his betrayer and the humility, love, grace, and mercy still that he gives to these men. Think about this here. Judas kissed Christ. Jesus let Judas kiss him. God, in other words, Let the lips of his mocker touch him. God held out his hands only to be overtaken by his creation. Jesus had endured the evil and insincerity of Judas. The entire time throughout the entire ministry, day after day in the temple, Christ knew that the Jews would not ultimately turn or repent, but he showed up still to offer love, the gospel of grace, to a cold and hard-hearted generation, which he knew would ultimately reject him and kill him. And these clubs and swords here in the hands of these guards are nothing to Christ. Christ had the power to overtake them, to crush these men, but he didn't. Why? Because Jesus is merciful even to his enemies. This is patience, this is enduring, this is long suffering. This is humble, this is gracious love, which depends on the sovereignty of God to guide the hearts of man and order the events of life while remaining fully committed to the gospel. The Jewish church and the government here have joined forces to carry out an agenda which is opposite to Christ's hope and agenda. Christ had the power to stop it. The scheming was evil. Their plan was godless. And this group's decision was proof of their moral blindness. But still we have Jesus doing this. Can you see here the love and character of Christ portrayed in the garden? How Jesus was even merciful and gracious to those who rejected and hated him the most. This is the power of the gospel. Only Christians have this type of power, which comes from the spirit of Christ himself. So Jesus spoke about enemies and instructed his disciples to live in the face of the opposer. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus said this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. I'm wondering if you and I think about the world and our enemies like this. When I say world, I I mean those who dislike us and oppose the gospel. Is this the way that we think about and love those who push back on our God and also his church? Those who seek to prevent or hinder Common grace and human flourishing in the world? Are we merciful and gracious like Christ was to them? Or does the world's heartless agenda, ungodliness, and its nasty choices, immoral choices, rile up in us cruelty and mercilessness? Are we as Christians willing to follow our Savior even to this? I guess most simply put, the question is, do people's evil and mistreatment of you, the Lord, or your loved ones keep you from loving them? You see, Jesus here is teaching us how to wage war in his kingdom, and waging war in his kingdom is not a physical war waged, but a spiritual war rage. That's why he said in John chapter 18, plainly, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would not have been fighting I'm sorry, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. For those who live by the sword, die by the sword. You see, our God is sovereign and vengeance is his. The hope and promise of the gospel to us through Christ here is that fruitful and faithful steps of obedience in love and mercy, even towards our worst of enemies, is the way that we as Christians are to fight and live for the sake of advancing God's holy kingdom. So I ask you again, are you patient with those who least deserve it? Are you kind and merciful to those who are morally wretched and oppose Christ? Are you willing to lay down your life honor God by loving even the worst. You see, Jesus did not let anything stop him for love. That applies to Judas and also these men, so it must apply to us. Amen? Well, that was point number one, the world's rejection. We're moving now to point number two, and I'd like to show you something different here, and that is our betrayal. I, um, I think one of the the most saddest and uh, frustrating things that I have seen over my years as a pastor is um, to see people's rejection of the church due to its imperfections and also the imperfections and sins of its people and or leaders. I uh, understand that these things can be hard and hurtful to see and experience, and there's absolutely time and places for them to be called out. It is right to expose evil Mishaps and shortcomings, etc. But here I'm not necessarily talking about extreme things. I'm talking about mere ordinary things. The common imperfections and flaws found within the church, it's people and leaders. You see, people because of other Christians and their problems, their sins and imperfections have left the church and/or refused to come to the church. And I say that it's really sad and frustrating to see but it, because it exposes a gospel ignorance to who God's people are and what exactly is his church. Who have always God's people been? They have been sinners saved by grace alone. Who or what has the church only ever been? A group of ordinary and perfect people gathering to worship one and o- only one perfect Savior. And in the age of the internet where the presence of the church is there has come this hypercritical uber judgmental type of christian group or presence where people are eager to call out expose and or criticize a church or its leader or its people for falling short or not making the mark. And like I said there's times and places for that but with the ordinary things can we extend grace? For the most part, I'd say it's hypocrisy. Why? Because it's people who demand the grace of God and mercy of God, but are not willing or ready or eager to extend it. It's self righteousness. Listen, we're all sinners, we're all inconsistent. Every day, each and every one of us fall from grace and sin from the holy God. And until our hearts and persons come to terms with this reality, which is the fact that no one deserves grace, but God in his grace and mercy gives it to us anyway, we will not only fail to know the power of the gospel, but we will also have a real inability to love others, which is the exact thing that the gospel is purposed for and designed for. Giving grace to the least Likely. And you see, this is the exact problem with Peter here and the other disciples in the story. If you look there in verse 47, Mark says this. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the ear of the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In uh, John chapter 18, John identifies this sword-wielding person as Peter. And you see, what Peter didn't understand here was that he struggled with self-righteousness. The fact that he has only, and will ever only, be saved by grace. In other words, the only reason Peter is a disciple here, named a disciple here, is because Jesus, in a great act of love and mercy, by grace alone, called him to be so. And so here in the garden, after seeing um, Judas betrayed, he is ready to fight him off and his posse, instead of embodying the character, intention, and desire of Christ, so as to extend to him mercy. But in Luke chapter 22, after P- Peter cuts off Malchus' ear, which then falls to the ground, we see the grace and mercy of Christ where then Jesus tells Peter to stop, bends down, picks up the ear of the person whose ear's been cut off, puts it back on his head, and heals him. How's that for love? Healing the person who's seeking to kill you. Judas wanted to fight and condemn him instead. And so here, not only do we have Jesus being rejected by Judas, but we also have the hypocrisy of Peter and the fickle faith and betrayal of the disciples. If you look there in verse 50, Mark says that after Jesus was taken, that they all left him and fled. In other words, after Jesus was taken, no one here in the garden remained faithful to Christ. Not even zealous Peter himself, every one of these men, including all of the disciples, even Mark himself fled and ran the scene. I mentioned it earlier, how in the story we have the first streaker ever known in the history of the Bible. You'll see that there in verses 51 and 52. We're not exactly sure who this young man is that Mark is referring to, but for a number of reasons that I don't have time to get into here, throughout church history, it is believed to be Mark. In other words, Mark, the author, in the same way that artists from the medieval time period painted pictures of their own faces into their work, he is doing the same thing to say, although this story is not about me, it is about Christ. I'd like to emphasize this idea of all and tell you that even me, the author of this Bible book itself, betrayed and fled the scene. Everyone ran. No one stood faithful, and they all said earlier on in this chapter that they would. This is prophecy fulfilled from Amos chapter 2, which says, Even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. In verse 27, Jesus predicted this For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Here it begins. The sheep are beginning to scatter. I was on Twitter the other day. I follow a preacher. His name is Paul Washer. I listen to him every once in a while. And not too long ago, Paul tweeted this. Even the most mature saints will struggle against worldliness and apathy towards God. There is no sincere Christian who does not lament his or her own spiritual and moral failures. Yet this lamenting is one evidence of conversion." The unregenerate, a.k.a. non-Christians, are unconcerned about such things. You see, Mark's lack of identity paired with this word all here is inviting us as readers to examine our own readiness to abandon Christ. In other words, as we think about the applicability of the story, the disciples here are to represent you and me. God's word here was written for the purpose of helping us see, acknowledge, and also confess our own fickleness in following the Lord, which is meant to make us lament and repent over the fact that we all are like Peter and the rest of the disciples here, and in our sin, betray God. In other words, one day we could be hot in the faith, and the next day we can be cold. One day we can wake up with love for God and affection for him, and the next day not feel a thing. One day we can love God, pray, read our Bibles, and be involved in church, and the next day we can be screaming at our children, arguing with our spouses, and hating our neighbors. It comes from our depravity, our sin nature within. It's the very thing that Paul confessed in Romans chapter 7, that we have the desire to carry out good, but we have a real inability to carry it out. And my brothers and sisters, it is essential that we confess this. Why? Because if we do not admit this, then not only will we be unable to receive the true power and saving grace of our Savior, but further relationally, we will be hypocrites and fail to extend mercy and grace towards those around us in the church who need it so desperately and live and function off the same thing that we do. Listen, Romans chapter 3 actually says these words. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. And yet, still, because of Christ's love and mercy, God has called each of us to himself and keeps us by grace through faith as his disciples. For it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we have been saved and called to follow the Lord. Therefore, how could we who have received such infinite grace and be ready to boast in it, not be willing, ready, and eager to extend it towards other people? I'm not excusing church hurt or leadership failure or sin in other people, I'm just saying that it's helpful first and foremost to be reminded of the gospel, which is who we would be and where we would be without the sovereign grace and mercy of God. The answer, nowhere. We would be nowhere. But now, having understood this, I ask you, have you been critical of other Christians or churches? Whether you're on the left or right, have you been critical of other Christians and churches? Have you been eager to extend to yourself mercy and not the people whose agendas are opposite towards yours? Before you engage in these things, would you first consider the fact that you yourself have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God, a.k.a. in sin, have betrayed him? You see, this is what Jesus in the garden wanted the disciples to understand that they needed the same type of mercy and grace that was extended to Judas in the garden. They didn't get it. They thought that they can persevere and stay committed to Christ on their own merit and own strength. But Jesus was trying to show them, which they will then connect the dots to after there, that they, the only reason that they could live and preserve and follow Christ, was receiving this grace and knowing humbly that without it, they can never make it. The only reason that we have come to this church is because there is one and only one Savior. And if you come to church with high expectations, unrealistic expectations to experience perfection, you're doomed to be hurt and not endure, give grace for the sake of Christ. Jesus is the one who keeps this church strong and together. And the way that it stays strong and together is by grace alone. And so if you've been hurt by a church or a Christian or a brother and sister, I want to say I'm really sorry. I know that can be really, really hurtful, but there is indeed also hope for you because Christ himself was betrayed on the cross. And because of this, he's able to extend empathy in your weakness and care for you, listen, and love. Now's a good time, I guess, to make the punch for membership, right? Uh, We're having membership this spring a lot of people are signed up. If you've been here for four months or longer um, and you think that this is going to be home for you, I'd encourage you to do it because this is a way for you to, um, to learn about that grace that is only received through a covenant commitment to the church. That's what makes membership so beautiful. That we in membership do not commit to a perfect church, but to a perfect Savior. Thus receiving grace, we know that the only way church would work is by continuing to extend it. To each other. That's a Christ centered church. If you're not a member, it's been four months, come talk to me. Amen? Well, that was point number two our betrayal. I like to finish with the best news possible, which is the Savior's mercy. I just mentioned a second ago, but uh, Mark and the way that he writes and concludes the story really wants us to focus on this word and idea of all. Earlier on in this chapter, when the disciples sat with Jesus at the, last, at the Last Supper, in verse 23, it says that they all drank the cup. In verse 31, it says that they all pledged to die with Christ. And yet here we have each of them all deserting Jesus, which is the climax of the story to lead us to the, the trial and crucifixion of the cross. But this is the point, logically speaking, in the story where it would make sense for Christ here to say, Hey, you know what? Forget this. The Jews rejected me. The Romans have met me with cuffs. And now, even here, my disciples, my most loved and trusted ministry partners have betrayed me. No one loves me. No one really cares and or is faithful to God through me. I'm done. But praise God that Christ didn't do this. And this indeed is what makes him such a glorious and faithful Savior. As we consider all of this rejection and betrayal of Christ, what I want to remind you of here is that the Scripture says that it was for the joy set before Christ that Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy that Christ had in mind? It was fulfilling his will and role as the Son of and savior of the world for him to be a sin sacrifice in order to ransom and reconcile a sinful and rebellious creation back to god in other words the sinless son of god died sinfully forsaken so we his people who struggle with sin and fickleness could by faith be guaranteed eternal life and love God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were were enemies of God, were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by Christ's life. So the gospel is this, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and yet it was the Lord's will to lay on Christ the iniquity of us all. Upon Christ was the chastisement that brought us peace. And now because Christ died and was raised, the promise is that through him, no matter what the sin, no matter what the shortcoming, no matter what the betrayal, no matter what the backslidden story, no matter what your distance from God, there is no one or nothing that can ever separate you from the love of the Father in Christ the Son. And this is the exact opposite of what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you're too dirty to be to God. That you're too far from God. That you haven't been praying enough. That you haven't been faithful enough. That you haven't been loving God enough. He wants you to to make you feel condemnation, guilt, and shame so you don't come Christ was forsaken for you so you can be accepted. He died sinfully so you can be pardoned as sinlessly. Now because of Christ's perfect work for you, you get God's promise, you get God's love, you get God's presence, you get God's affirmation, you get God's affection, you get God's blood which washes you clean from all of your guilt and sin. You are now therefore perfect, without condemnation. Behold, as a child in the presence of the Father. For those of you who know this thing of betrayal, I want to tell you that you get God's care. He wants to heal you and set you free and give you gospel hope. My hope for us this morning is that we would see that Christ was forsaken, so we would never be, by the one who matters the most, which is God Himself. This is our gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you God for your great love that even in our sin you still want us. That for those of us who've been covered by by grace and in Christ, there's nothing, not even sin itself that can keep us separate from you. We're always yours. Thank you so much for your great rescue. Heal the lies of the evil one inside that tell us that we have to work our way back or we're not good enough. Jesus died and rose once and for all. That is enough. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. You are the faithful Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.